You are listening to the Big Blue Rock Pod, produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. This podcast is a fun, conversational approach to discussing all things geology and earth processes. We primarily focus on Kentucky. We talk emerging ideas and research, along with classic topics in earth science for all levels of interest. Let's do the show! Hello, and welcome back to the Big Blue Rock Pod. I'm Matt Crawford, along with my co-hosts, Doug Curl and Sarah Arpin. Hey, Matt. Hey. Good morning. Good morning. How are we doing? Good. Good. Um, So today's topic is science communication, and um, I I think it's going to be a great follow-up to our conversation last month about climate science with Alice Turkington, right? Because a lot of that was, you know, stems around science communication, so I figured it'd be awesome to follow up with with a little more in depth on science communication, messaging and things like that. Doug, you, you and I have been here similar amount of time here at the survey, pretty long. Sarah, you've, you've been here a few years now, but one thing I really like about working here is the emphasis on science communication. We're not an academic teaching department. There's always been like a low hum of science communication as being part of our job, right? Something you have to think about, right? talk to people about why what we do is important. But I feel like in the last, say, 10 years, maybe 12, 15, that's really, that low hum's kind of amped up. And we really have to think a lot more or differently about science communication, right, with things like geologic hazards, hazard mitigation, geohealth, whatever it is, mapping, natural, uh, natural resources. I don't know. Do you, do you kind of oh, yeah. agree with yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, our mission is providing, part of our mission is providing geologic information for the people of Kentucky. And we're more and more doing that well, um, if you will. And we are becoming a, a, a place that people go to for that information, especially when events happen like the flooding in Eastern Kentucky, our, our director, He's been interviewed numerous yeah. times right. about that event, and of course that's communication. But then there's also just the emails you get from people that, you know, what is this? And they might be just benign questions about geology, but... They're important. Know, yeah, they're yeah. important, and it's important how we communicate them and and to to um, give them a, a scientific basis for for our answer, I guess. Yeah. I mean, Sarah, as a sort of newer employee, do you, I mean, do you get that sense as well? Well, absolutely. I think the people that, that we serve is, is everyone in the Commonwealth, be that industry or government or, um, your everyday general public with, you know, everybody relies on water. Everybody's lives are somehow related to these geologic resources. As you said, hazards impact everybody's lives. And so, um, and then I think it's just a trend in general, not just here, but science communication in general is having this yeah. moment. Um, right. And that's good it's because a- we do need to be able to get out of our shells and boxes and communicate uh, the things that we do in an understandable way. Yeah, science communication is having a moment. And I think that's why we we want to turn to an expert. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I will say, you oh. know, the the method has changed over. We used to do reports, and we still do reports. That, but most of our communication were these publications and things like right. that. But of course, the internet changes everything. And yeah, so let's let's get into it. Our guest is Dr. Sarah Voss. Sarah is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy and the director of undergraduate research in College of Public Health. She has research interest in effective messaging on social media, health policy communication, risk communication, and lots of other cool stuff. Sarah, thank you for being here. Yeah, welcome. Thank Thanks. you for welcome. having me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. Um, so why don't you uh, tell our listeners what you do? Um, well, I mostly what I do is teach public health. I'm in the College of public health, and I teach in the undergraduate program. Um, But I also do research on communication and communication during public health emergencies in particular. So a lot of my research has focused on 
risk communication, what's called risk communication, basically communicating at these moments when we need somebody to do something immediately to protect themselves. So take shelter or wear a mask, right? When we need people to act in this emergency moment. You know, as you guys have said, science communication has changed. And I think some of the things that um, what happened for me during the pandemic, in part because of where I'm focused and because I've been, you know, for years I've been looking at messaging during these emerging infectious diseases, um, not just before um, before COVID, there was Ebola. Um, we had it um, back in 2014, and then in 2016 there was Zika. In 2012, uh, I'm gonna not remember the year, but there was this very little known bird flu virus in China that was very disturbing and was kind of at the edges of what people were concerned about. And so I was looking at social media messaging, both among people sort of average people, and then also among organizations. And throughout this, you know, sort of what becomes apparent in those emergencies, and this is kind of where my latest interest is, um, I haven't published in this area, but I have a growing interest in sort of trust and thinking about um, trust over time, because oh, yeah. a lot of this communication that happens in these moments when we need people to act quickly assumes that you have that trust so you can actually get people to do what it is they need to do or, or what it is you think they need to do. Let's put it that way. But if you don't have that trust, then everything sort of falls apart. And so that's sort of where my current interest is, is lies, is looking at that. Oh, yeah, that's, that's great. I have a, I'm going to save this, but I have a good example about trust and, and, and a disaster. I'm going to see what you think about. Okay. Uh, yeah, let, yeah. Let's, let's start, we can start broad, I think, and kind of drill down to more specific things like, like trust and, and messaging. Uh, so we got some questions, but there's, a, and there's a lot of, going to be a lot of overlap, I think, with these questions, but that's fine. That's okay. So how, how do you, how do you think about science communication? I mean, I, it's, there's not a universal definition, I guess, and because you, you, you've done research in public health, we're interested in geology, geologic hazards and, and things. So it spans scientific fields. So how do you think about it in, in, in a 30,000 foot view? Well, so science communication is what it sounds like. Yeah. Communication about science. I mean, if we're going to just really write, we might ask, what is science? Is it chemistry? Is it biology? <laughs> is it public health? Or even, right, you study geologic hazards from one angle of understanding why they occur, how they occur from like a, right, earth science type background, right? I study them in terms of how people react and what messages, right? You could frame both of those as science communication, right? Yeah. So it's really, um, I mean, I think in terms of if we want to define the discipline of science communication, um, I would say it's an applied discipline. It is relatively new and I think has grown out of concerns of science not um, being understood by the general public. Um, but right. it has its roots in lots of communication research that spans sort of applications. So there is a good deal of science communication that draws on political communication and understanding people's beliefs and attitudes at this sort of public level. Um, there's um, science communication that draws on health communication, so understanding people's communicating around specific behaviors like vaccination that you want people to do. Um, there's science communication that's very similar to what, you know, sort of like my, my background personally is in health and risk communication, which is, you know, about communicating during these moments of crisis. Um, and particularly, I've been interested in how public health officials do that. You could also call that science communication. Um, right now, I'm reading a book called Strategic Science Communication because um, I'm considering it for a graduate class I'm working on. The funny thing about it is the author, John Baisley, who's at uh, the University of Michigan State, actually, every time he says the word science communication, I could just as easily substitute strategic public health communication hmm. yeah. because he's talking about climate change and vaccination, right? So a lot of the research comes from areas, um, really kind of spans 
that. Now, if you talk to somebody who was trained in science communication, and there are science communication programs, like at the University of Wisconsin has a big one, um, there are scholars who have kind of staked their careers, yeah. they might argue with me a little bit. You know, like any discipline, there's overlapping. We're drawing on similar theories. Sometimes the theories have slightly different names, but the the you know the basic communication models are the same. So it is really what I would call as kind of an applied area of communication. And then you might say, well, what is communication? Right. <laughs> and communication is reaching shared meaning, right? Shared understanding um, is really right. And it, it's that sharing. It is not, sometimes we think about communication as the transfer of information, right? Um, and a lot of times we talk about it in this kind of very, in this way, right? Like, I'm going to write this report and transfer this information to you. And that is not necessarily communication. Uh, uh, okay, yeah, I was going to so. kind of say that. Like, it's, I was going to say it's sort of a, a channel for distilling technical information to the general public, or we're, we're bridging a gap yeah. between uh, technical concepts and, and science to um, the public. But yeah, tr transferring might not be the right, or channel might not be the right way to. Yeah, know, I mean, it. early communication models really focus on this kind of sender-receiver transfer of information, but really true communication is not just about this one-way transfer of knowledge. It's about this conversation that happens. So yeah. if you're truly going to have science communication, right, maybe as a technical expert, you might explain something to a community or group of people. But you should also go there with the willingness to understand how they perceive the problem, what they see from it. And that might in turn change your science and change your scientific questions, right? So it's reaching that kind of shared understanding feedback loop is where you get true communication. Yeah, that's a great point. Is that maybe tough for scientists? You know, you have this field and you're very focused on it and you've done all this research and written these reports and things and now you're going to tell everybody about what you discovered and yeah um, well i guess it depends on where science is taking place right there yeah. are venues where the goal is for the scientist to explain what they have discovered and, and that is that's good right it's good to share that um but if we're talking about science communication, you're kind of going back and saying, okay, well, what is my goal here? And if your goal is just to have people appreciate this cool thing you've discovered, that's great, right? Th then that's, that. that's a good venue for that. But it gets more complicated when we want people to act on science, right? Yeah. Yeah. Th this gets to the point of why this matters. I mean, you, you just said like, we all, we all, we publish papers, we go to conferences and give talks, we do workshops, but there's always the so what question that that's lingering there. And I, what I jotted down there was the so what is better science, right? If you can communicate the so what, it makes the technical part of your discovery or whatever you're doing better, and it makes it better for the people who need the information on the other side. So it's a simple. It's a simple answer. Is better science overall when you can well, communicate or what you're doing? Well, it could be right. You're not even asking the right questions, right? I mean, that sort of that yeah. that might be why, right? I mean, maybe and, and maybe it's part of this disjuncture of science from or this separation of science from everyday life, right? That. You know, probably has grown in part because of expertise. In some ways, right, the reason why you want people to ooh and ah over your discovery is because you're using tax dollars to fund your discovery, to fund your work, and to justify your salary. And so why, right, why should people be invested in it themselves? And so that kind of, it yeah. gets back to this question of of what is what is our goal by communicating science, right? What's the purpose? Is it just appreciation? Is it that we want more support for science and the public? Is it that we want people to act in certain ways? And then sometimes that depends on what science you're doing. 
But if you know what your goal is, then you can start to think about, okay, who is my audience and why should they care, right? And and that's really where the good science communication starts, um, not with um, just making sure that people can understand it. Yeah, yeah. I I just love that shared meaning and understanding. I I hadn't really heard that in the context of science communication, but that's... That's going to stick with me for a while. So okay. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you mentioned audience. And uh, so, I mean, I, knowing your audience is seems to be, a, you know, a, a solid foundation or starting point for good science communication, risk, risk communication. What else do you think about as far as you know, sort of staples or foundations for, you know, implementing good science communication or disaster disaster communication well, risk. Yeah. I mean, it, it does knowing, I, I think it starts with that goal, right? So come, stepping back to that goal, like what is your ultimate goal? And then, you know, once you know your goal, you can start to think about the audience. Um, but it's not just knowing, I think knowing who your audience is simplifies it. You actually have to know what your audience cares about. Yeah. Um, and think about why should they care about your science? Like, what difference is it going to make in their lives? And, and so that's really important. And knowing that audience can be the start of maybe creating trust, right? Um, creating a framework in which you have a relationship with this audience. I think oftentimes, you know, as experts, scientists come into communities and identify a problem and identify a solution. And if there's not this conversation that happens with the community along the way, there's not going to be any sort of buy-in for that solution. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I, I kind of had similar to that is, we, you know, you can kind of come into it de-emphasizing truth or you're de-emphasizing, hey, here's this thing I'm going to tell you about because I'm the expert. But emphasize the overall process of how you got there and and sort of the comprehensive scientific process that that the community can become a part of yeah and, and that, so that, that I, uncertainty comes in there too if you're able to explain uncertainty i think can help bring people into accepting yeah well and i think too like let's kind of pull this apart cuz you're talking about there right sort of this one, transparency. So, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, communicating with people, um, it's important to be transparent. And by transparent, right, what are your goals? Where is your funding? And how are you making these decisions, right? And so so part of this that is that transparency. And then part of it is really acknowledging the uncertainty. There's two ways you can acknowledge uncertainty. You can hedge. Well, we may. Well, we might. Mm. But I actually think um, because uncertainty underlies all science, we actually have to be even more clear and comfortable with it as scientists. Yeah, absolutely. And and so saying things like, well, we don't know, but this is why we think this, right? And so so that, that combination – of transparency and uncertainty goes a long way. Which gets back to your trust. Which gets back to All of that is very trust building because you've been transparent and given every bit of information that you know from the get-go. So I think that's really interesting that those kind of loop around. Some other, you know, other basic things, I think, uh, that we, we here think about a lot, keeping your message simple, avoiding jargon, having an elevator pitch, you know, I, I've thought about that a, a lot in the last, not really since I've been doing landslide stuff, but it's harder than it sounds, right? To have an elevator pitch, just to have it at your disposal, right? And whenever yeah. you need it, it's been, it's very valuable. So simple messaging, voiding jargon, those things sound easy, but they're really important. Uh, yeah. And, and I think you're right. It's, it's actually hard to it's a good exercise to see how difficult they are. One of the things I do with my students is I give them a brief on lead poisoning, and I tell them to write social media messages from it. Mm. <laughs> and 
you know, these are undergraduates, so they've developed some level of sophistication and vocabulary. And and I don't want to say that, you know, these things are important, right, because they allow scientists to talk to each other and um, be very precise about what we're doing, which is important in the project. But when they then take that and think about communicating that information to people in the general public, they have a hard time kind of pulling back and understanding how to explain things because you want to, it's not so much, you want to get rid of the jargon, but you also don't want to simplify it too much. Like you don't necessarily need to get in the weeds and there's, you know, little debates here and there within a discipline that you don't necessarily need to explain, explain, but you do still need to be able to help people understand how complicated it is. Yeah, um, right. And so it, it there is a place for being simple, but we also don't want to undersell what we're doing by making it so simple we're not really showing the coolness of it. So it's really, um, you know, I think getting rid of the jargon or explaining jargon is key, but also, um, you know, so some of that is just explaining the terminology, right? Because yeah. there's some terminology that we can help people understand that that will enrich their understanding of it. Believe us, geologists, uh, we have a lot of weird terminology we have to <laughs> explain. Yeah, every yeah. science discipline <laughs> every science has theirs. Yeah. But, yeah. but I, I want to just add one more thing, right? The, the thing that actually is hardest in that communicating simply part is remembering the assumptions that you make in the discipline as a scientist that are unrelated maybe to jargon, that um, somebody who was not you know, right. Part of what happens when you become an expert is you become um, surrounded by these assumptions. You take them on. You become acculturated to them. You kind of adopt it as you, you know, adopt this disciplinarity. And so you have to be able to take a step back and 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 remember, right? Not everybody has these same assumptions, right? Um, and so explaining yeah. that um, in a detailed way. And that's sometimes that's where uncertainty comes in, but that's not the only thing, right, that you make an assumption about, right? Yeah, uh, so that that perfectly leads to my next uh, sort of point here. And I, I guess I'll just sort of tee this up with the example that I said I would mention earlier. It's, a, it's an earthquake example. And the in 2009, there was a, you all probably remember this, Doug, Sarah, the uh, El Alquila earthquake in Italy. It occurred in 2009. Uh, there were some Italian seismologists who were accused of misleading the public about the risk of an earthquake. The earth, there, there was an earthquake that happened. It was a 6.3. It struck a small town of El Alquila. It killed 300 people. The, the accusation stemmed from um, there were lots of small earthquakes uh, that had been occurring weeks and months up to the main shock. That's not uncommon to have small swarms of tremors. So the public got worried. They were asking questions. Then there, were, there was also in this whole thing, a random dude that made an earthquake prediction, like not a seismologist, not a scientist, just some guy that said, you know, well, because we're having these tremors, a bunch of small magnitude tremors, there's going to be a big shock. There's going to be a big earthquake. So that additional, you know, worry for people there. Then the seismologists and other public officials met. They had some behind closed doors meetings and, and kind of conveyed to the public that there was nothing to worry about. They, they uh, said, you know, just because we're having these tremors, doesn't mean there's going to be a big quake, which is true. They down they downplayed the risk in how they they said things. So, and there ended up being a large earthquake, right? And these scientists, these seismologists, and a few other public officials were convicted of manslaughter in 2012. Three three years following, you know, after a long trial, three years following the earthquake, and they were sentenced to prison. They were ultimately acquitted, right? In the appeal, they were acquitted. But this whole scenario just like turned the you know at least the you know earthquake community into a tizzy like this is going to change everything on how we communicate earthquake hazards and risk. Anyway, I just want to hear your thoughts on that, or if you remember that story. Or, I or that. I remember that, and I'm going to ask two questions uh, okay. first. Like, so tell me, my understanding of earthquake prediction is that it's kind of impossible. That's correct. Right. So not only can you not predict if one's going to occur, 
you can't predict if one isn't going to occur. Right. Right. And so in this case, unless you're like five seconds away or a minute, right? There's, is there some, there's some amount of time beforehand, but it's too little maybe, time. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's early, that's early, early yeah, warning yeah. kind of yeah. work. But it's, it's like seriously like a minute. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So we're dealing with, you know, so here's where, you know, I might agree. Those scientists should have come out and said, we don't know because they don't. Right. Say, we have no data to say that it's more likely. We also have no data to say that it's less likely, right? Because that is the honest answer. Now, I think what they were trying to do is prevent people from panicking. You know, what we can do is we can maybe build our buildings so that in the future they can withstand earthquakes. We can have policies to, we know this is a region where we're likely to have them. And so we can maybe build this infrastructure. But in this short-term window, we can't say with any certainty when an earthquake is going to occur. And so th I think this is like, you know, a good example of not trying to be the expert mm -hmm. instead of being transparent yep. about the knowledge you have. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like it, it really just stems to a few words in transparent communication that they didn't, they didn't get right. I mean, they really should have done what you said. Just, I don't know. Here's what we do know about the probability of an earthquake occurring in this region, knowing that there's been some uh, small tremors, knowing there's been a swarm of earthquakes, right? You, they can say something about that. Yeah. They cannot predict if there's going to be one and when yeah. it's going to be. But they just kind of, even one of the town engineers or civil leaders said something like, everyone can have a glass of wine and relax. We will be okay. Yeah. You, can't, you can't say stuff like that. Really, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, anyway, it was a crazy story at the time, and still, kind of is a something to think about. Yeah. In, in, well, in and, and earthquakes are very. I mean, as we've just seen, right? In yeah. Turkey and Syria, right? They're very difficult hazards. They're very destructive, and they really require you know because it's not like a tsunami where you can warn people it's coming or a hurricane and people can evacuate. Right. Um, they really require a different kind of thinking about how we build and where we live, which is a very difficult question, right, that that scientists often don't like to get into these political questions, right? But when we're thinking about how science influences people's lives, right, it's always political. It's, um, it's a different question, yeah. right? And so, you know, it might mean that right if you study earthquakes like maybe you don't want to be in the warning part because like that science is pretty uh difficult maybe you want to be in the part of okay so how do we build more resilient systems to survive these events yeah yeah absolutely so that's an example of where right knowing your community and talking to your community can make a difference if if indeed my vague memory of the traditional ways of dealing with tremors in that community is yeah, true. I think, yeah, actually, I think you may be right because people were wanting to know whether they should stay outside, sleep outside. Yeah, yeah. Right. Or for, maybe for that was it, sleep outside. And not, yeah. and not, and not, um, not go inside. Yeah. So. But yeah, regardless, you have experts coming in and sort of operating at this level where they're not connecting with the community at all and yeah. Sort of giving this blanket, oh, there's nothing to be worried about. There's nothing about. to be worried about. Yeah. And you and know, it's in them, a it's in a great example too, right? If if it was sleeping outside was the option, right? Of a community having a way of dealing with the uncertainty, mm -hmm. right? And so rather than the scientist identifying the solution to we don't know, right? The community can actually help the scientist identify what the best solution is. Right. And so it's an example of that you know, knowing, knowing your audience and, and understanding their wants and needs in addition to knowing the science. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there's a lot of, <laughs> you know, who's liable and, and oh, that boy. sort of thing. And that, I think that's probably what sent shockwaves, if you will, through the he, he, scientific he, community. But, but ultimately, you know, whether they should be liable or not, they should have been better communicators. I think hopefully there was some lesson learned yeah. about how they communicate this yeah, and not, and not sure. just focusing on whether scientists are liable for this sort of thing or not. I mean, 
I, I feel certain there were several articles yeah. in the communication research <laughs> on it. I, I yeah, this, vaguely remember this. The but. the shockwaves are like, well, now I'll I'll have to be super careful about everything I say from here on out. And, right. Yeah. And we we do that already, but it just took it to a new new mm-hmm. level when you got some scientist convicted of manslaughter. <laughs> yeah. And, you yeah. know, it's crazy. Yeah, well, words matter. People act words on matter. them, right? Yeah. yeah. People act on words. So a lot of this we've touched on, but I wanted to see what you think about how research institutions, like you're in academia, so how 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 are universities, not just scientists, but uh, social scientists, people like yourself, kind of uh, embracing changes in science communication and how we rethink things. You mentioned social media already. I mean, that's one avenue where things are changing rapidly and it's a tool used for science communication, risk communication, warnings. So um, I don't know. How do you think about that with not just universities, but other institutions? Well, I think... Are they embracing kind of this new level of, of need? I think there has been a new interest. I mean, so let me... My background is in journalism, I um, I started my um, my adult careers as a journalist. Um, I worked in New York, New Hampshire, and then Kentucky. Um, and then in the Great Recession, the economy decided that I wasn't going to be a journalist anymore. Mm-hmm. And so um, I st- started studying communication. So I've always been interested in this sort of thinking about public communication broadly Whereas a lot of health communication is really focused on behavior-based communication, patient-provider communication, less so thinking about what we might think about um, as more sort of the public relations of health communi- medical science communication or public health communication or science communication. Um, and in part, that's because of a lot of our funding is for individual diseases and disease-based in the health communication world, right? And so there's a lot of focus on cancer, right? Diabetes, right? That type of thing. But I can see that the discipline is slowly coming towards my interest, which is more of this strategic communication, right? How do we, as organizations, so my, my, you know, part of what I'm interested in is how public health organizations in particular communicate on social media. Um, And I've spent a lot of time looking at that. And, and so there is more of an interest in that type of communication that I can see percolating up through the research. Um, if you go to these meetings, you hear a lot more people talking. Um, and it's always been there. It's just not been sort of front and center. Right. But for example, the National Institutes of Health put together a group to really rethink the health communication research in light of what's been going on. Because I think there was this huge, what I would call is a break that happened in the scientific community, right? Because with COVID, they did, they, they, they had the miracle, right? They created a vaccine in almost less than a year um, from the time we identified a new disease, right? Now, 10 years, I think, was the previous record on that, mm. right? So from a purely sort of scientific discovery perspective, it is far beyond imagination of what we thought we could do. And and to the level of where I, like, it's almost like um, a movie type thing in terms of the speed at which they were able to do it with. Like if you watch movies about epidemics, they always yeah. get a vaccine really quickly, right? <laughs> I mean- HIV is another epidemic we've had since the 1980s, and we still don't have a vaccine, right, 40 years later, right? So just to kind of compare, you know, clearly, right, a lot of money and attention went to it. So they got the scientific miracle, and then they couldn't get people to take it. And so this has really caused this hand-wringing. I mean, even, you know, the former head of the NIH was quoted as saying something, and I can't remember the exact quote, but, you know, like, basically, like, we blew it right? Because there's been this lack of, there's been so much focus on developing the expertise and so little focus on thinking about how science can actually make a meaningful difference in people's daily lives. So like, for example, I'll take health communication. In health communication, if you look at the messages people receive about health, 
They think they are all about, oh, eat better, exercise more. We all actually know what we need to do, right? And so what, you know, the reason why the whole nanny state label, I think, sticks to public health is because if you look at their messaging, it's all about telling people to eat better, telling people to, to exercise more, but not actually changing the circumstances of their life so it's possible. And so instead, it's like the mom who's like, well, get an A, just do your homework. And it's this nagging kind of like, instead of creating the conditions in which people can live and lead healthy lives. It gets back. And, oh, yeah. Go no, go ahead. Sorry. That gross oversimplification and how that can be a detriment, right? Like we know that the obesity crisis has a lot more to do with uh, chronic stress, for example, communities who are impoverished and constantly worried about getting the food or getting the job and the money to maintain their family, provide for their family. And that chronic stress has a huge impact on our metabolism. And so there's all these other impacts or other factors that go into it. And so just saying, we'll eat better or exercise, like you're, you're giving people this simple message. They do that and they, they can't, you know, it doesn't work or, um, this, this gets at, like responsible communication, effective communication, getting people to your your I think main thing one of your main things yeah how do you get people to care, and so it's like yeah it is not saying well, eat, I, eat eat better it's crafting crafting it in a way that that builds trust that maybe you tell a story no, but maybe you, maybe maybe right the science the the this is where my audience comes in. So if I go out and do research and I ask people what it means to eat healthy, what I'm going to learn is that most people know what they should be doing. And so then that's going to change my research. So I'm going to say, huh, if most people know what they should be doing in terms of eating and diet and exercise, maybe the question is not communicating information. Maybe the question is, what are the barriers to doing that in your life? And then the communication becomes much harder because then maybe my question is, well, how do I persuade policymakers to make changes so that people can actually engage in the things I want them to do? And so it's, or, or that, not that I want them to do, but that we, they know they want to do and they know would be better for them. So how do we make structural changes, right? Because I think often we focus, we are, we are um, big on individuals in our society in general, right? We have lots of myths of, you know, individuals pulling, right, you know, themselves up by their bootstraps. You hear people, you know, talk about, oh, well, I worked really hard in order to justify where they are and who they are. And that is probably true, right? I don't doubt that there are lots of people who've worked really hard and succeeded. There are also lots of people who work really hard and do not have sort of what we would call traditional measures of financial success in our con- in our country, because that's one of the big ways we measure it. Because we focus so much on individuals, we lose focus on the value of community. And, and I feel like this is what sort of like when I've been thinking about the pandemic and the, communi- the scientific communication problems that arose out of it, for me, it really all goes back to valuing the local, to valuing local expertise and to valuing local communities um, because we've allowed our experts to become disengaged from those real kind of moments or, or those real places and understanding, right, the solution to any problem is not going to be necessarily a national solution. It's it's going to be a local solution. And now that's not to say there's not national things we could do, right? We could provide funding. But in any given community, I think the decisions have to be local in order to create solutions that people buy into. Doug, you probably remember this. We, we uh, during the digital mapping program, we had a few instances of going out to some ad districts and communicating with them on the importance of digital geologic maps. Now we have these in GIS. How is you know? Here's why you should know about it. And I, at the time, I just felt like felt like it was the right thing to do. But now that I re- think back on it, it probably didn't land, just because we were like, 
we have all these cool maps. You should use them instead of, I don't know, bringing them in more and seeing what they need, um, bringing it in more to, to emphasize social or political or other implications uh, with this wealth of information at their fingertips now. And, or, and, it, and it didn't, it, you know, I just don't think it landed at the time. And we know more now, but, you know. Well, or it might be right. Like, could you go back to those communities and could you go to um, some local groups, like maybe a church or um, the, you know, local board, the zoning board, any, any you know, the county, is it the county board of directors? I can't remember yeah, right. what we have here in Kentucky. I want to say selectmen, but that was what we had in New Hampshire. Um, and uh, I'm actually from Kentucky. I just worked on a lot of local government issues in mm. New Hampshire. So I know all about local government in New Hampshire in a way that I don't know about Kentucky. But, you know, it might be right. Instead of showing them your digital maps, mm. you have to go out and say, oh, we can do this thing. How would it be useful for you? What should we be mapping? What kinds of information do you want to know about your community? And you might come with some suggestions, right, of things that are possible because you don't know what you don't know if you're somebody who's encountering it for the first time. But, you know, people are good at making analogies, right? So so you could be like, oh, yeah, we can look at flood zones or we can look at this. We can look at this. Um, how would this be best used for you? Um, what kinds of questions do you have that a digital map? could answer. Um, because it might be, right, the question they want answered is, we want to put a bike trail in that everyone will use. So how can we connect enough communities with it, right? right? You know, I mean, I that's what I think of when I think of maps, because I like to bike. But, you know, there's other, other, so that might be the way to create buy-in for those products is because the communities themselves have identified how they're actually useful. I think that's, yeah, I think that's right. It's absolutely right. And we did that to some extent a little bit later. Yeah. Um, not so consciously, but that's what happened is we had to come up with, with ways we could demonstrate that these yeah. data were useful because I mean, nobody, I mean, they're like, oh, that's great that you have all this data. And we're very proud of it because yeah. that's what we do. We create lots of data and make it available. But yeah, we had to create products. So there are all these county maps that we created that have things like, oh, this is how you can use these maps to build ponds or, you know, to, you know, for selecting sites for pond building or septic tanks. Well, well, I I have a new research project for you. I bet you could go to like three different zoning boards in the state. (laughs) Just pick three and say, what kinds of information would be really useful to know? Yeah. yeah. Um, And maybe even write some of the nonprofits around the state and they would be full of ideas of things that, you know, ways to apply this data in a way that really made people's lives better. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, whether it's for development or for some other things, right? Because often people don't know how the science can work for them, right? Yeah. Because zoning boards, they're volunteer, they're, you know, these are not necessarily, um, people who have a lot of extra time. Usually, um, you know, they have some interest in real estate, um, but not necessarily, right, geologic expertise and thinking about, oh, in 50 years, how will, you know, will this subdivision be able to take the predicted flooding, um, or are there ways we can build ponds so that we don't have flooding in this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Fayette County could probably use it just to identify some more places for some good rain gardens, given some of the deep <laughs> right, water yeah. streets I've driven yeah. through after a torrential rain here. Yeah, yeah this is all getting at um, motivating people to take action with the science you're conveying or the the work you've done. Or even it's, it's not, I, I would say it even goes beyond that. It's actually changing the questions you're asking, yeah, right? Yes. Because you're going to decide what questions to ask using your scientific skills yes. based on what the community actually needs, as opposed to saying, oh, well, I can do this, right? Yes. So that, that can include, well, I, t- telling stories that people connect with in the community, right? You're, you're there. So, well, the example I had was going to talk about with some of the, the land side susceptibility and risk data that I've, oh, I've yeah. generated. And this is a FEMA project. 
And um, I have been having stakeholder meetings in Eastern Kentucky with emergency managers, mayors, floodplain coordinators, judge executives, all these people. And I really have tried to to do just that, not be the person that goes down there and says, I'm the landside hazards geologist that made this awesome model of, of landside susceptibility, but ask them what they would like to see or how, how they can use, use this, right? All those questions, bring them into the conversation. I can tee things up with a story about someone who had their house uh, taken out, right? Something like that. And kind of make them feel a, a part of the solution. I guess where I'm going with this is, is, you know, how do you know that people will be taking action. I don't, I don't mean that's not the right way to ask it, but you people know. do what makes sense. Yeah. Um, so you have to create the environment and what, which doing what you think the correct scientific answer makes sense. So for example, I will, I'll give a, this New York times had a story recently where they talked about climate change and what we can do to prevent it. And their answer was, don't drive or own a car, don't fly, don't eat beef. (laughs) And, you know, that might be the scientifically correct answer if you really individually want to stop it. But that's not realistic for anyone trying, you know, I mean, giving up beef, that might be more manageable than the others. There's other protein sources, right? But we have engineered our cities, we've engineered our country so that flying in a plane or driving a car in particular is really not an option, even if you can't afford a car. And so nobody is going to do those things. But if you make it make sense, right? So, you know, how do you make not using a car make sense? You create bike lanes without cars. You create public transportation, um, you invest in systems and structures. And so, you know, I'm, I, I've, I think asking people to do things that doesn't make sense is a recipe for, for really um, alienating people. I'll just tune it because, out. Because, well, because, yeah, because all you're doing is you're making them feel bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're not actually providing a solution. And so, you know, maybe it's that you've identified this thing, the community can't afford to do it, right? Like these houses need to be relocated or rebuilt because of, I, I'm just giving, I'm coming sure. up with a, an example, right? Or, and so maybe it's helping the community apply for the proper grants so that they can actually do something about it. I think um, often as experts, we just expect people to follow what we're going to say. But people do what makes sense with their daily lives. Um, and often, you know, long-term planning for big hazards is outside of people's financial capabilities on a day-to-day basis. They're, they're focused on their immediate needs, rent, food, getting their kids to school. And so we, you know, we have to be aware of that yeah. and, and rethink our, rethink what we're doing in a way that allows people to do it. Does that? Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. It gets back to the trust part I, as well. Yeah. And I, I really think this, yeah, this conscious engagement with community, that's a really, really good advice to. Yeah. Which that. I think the question that kicked this off was like, what changes are being made um, yeah. in institutions or in scientific communities? And I think like that's been the big message of today is like there is now this push to go back to communities. Um, you mentioned several times traditional knowledge, indigenous knowledge. Like that's something that we're now trying to be more aware and conscious of um, and realize that we can learn. It is, as you said, that shared meeting in that two-way street. I think the emphasis on that is really key. It is that relationship, right? Um, and so if people feel that science is actually making a difference in their lives, um, in their daily lived experience, because they have this relationship with somebody who is helping them, right? That goes a long way towards building that trust and and building this trust reserve so that when you come out and tell them the thing they don't want to know or do, they will, you know, take that, you know, trust is really a leap of faith. 
it's this, you have knowledge that I don't have and, and taking that and act on it, you know? And so that's why those relationships are so important. Yeah. Um, there was one more thing I wanted to mention. I think this would probably be our last, last thing. Sarah, you've been really generous with your time and it's yeah. been, this conversation's flown by in a really good way. Uh, Doug, you and I were in a meeting last week with Kent Annis, who was a guest on this podcast. He's a director of the Division of Geographic Information in Frankfurt. And they have uh, developed a Kentucky Emergency Response Portal website. And it's for mostly for emergency managers to go to to get quick, understandable, digestible map data for disasters or response, right? Um, for people who need to make quick decisions uh, during an event. And uh, so, so some of the maps that are in the portal are exist. We're going to add some of our stuff there very soon. But it, I just like I loved that meeting and knowing that that existed because it was just like, okay, this this is a way you're building some trust. We know Kent said the emergency managers like it; they use it. So I was like, there's some trust there. There's value going out there, right? Our science is getting used. There's value for them. So I was like, oh, this is this is what we want. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. so that, that's that, great. Yeah. So so I would before you turn your maps over to them, have a focus group of emergency managers to find out what they really mm -hmm. need those maps to highlight and show, and how they want it broken down, so that when they're panicking and they're pulling that map out because they need it. You, you're providing them with what they need then. Yeah. 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 Understanding the audience. I mean, yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. Seems to be a big part of this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Not uh, just understanding, knowing, no, talking yeah. to, talking having to, a conversation with. with and, yeah. Right. Yeah, having that yeah. back and forth so that they can put input into your science. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And there, right, your goal is probably pretty clear. You want these maps to be useful to this group of people, right? So that's kind of an easy one to sort of be like, okay, I know what to do here in terms of communication. I need to ask them, what do you need to be yeah. useful here? Yeah. Right. Sarah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks a lot. It was a great conversation. Mm -hmm. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. All right. Excellent. Everybody, thanks. Well, thank right. you. Bye. 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 This podcast was produced by the Kentucky Geological Survey at the University of Kentucky. Special thanks to Ben Corwin and Alicia Gregory at UK's Office of Research Communications for technical support. If you have any ideas for the show, email mcrawford at uky.edu. Thanks for listening.